This is Sacred Tension, the podcast about the discipline of asking questions and where we try to have compassionate and compelling conversations about challenging subjects. My name is Stephen Bradford Long, and as always, this show is brought to you by my patrons. My patrons are my personal lords and saviors, and I truly could not do this show without them. So I have to thank the patrons who have signed up over the past 30 days, and they are Kirsten, Roland, Colton, Christopher, Amelia, Joshua, and Patty D. Thank you so much. In order to keep me from having to train my cats to become a cat circus and take them on the road to make ends meet, please go to patreon.com forward slash Stephen Bradford Long for a dollar, three dollars or five dollars a month. You get extra content every single week, including my House of Heretics podcast with my co-host Timothy McPherson, who is a former Salvation Army officer turned Christian heretic. And we talk about controversies online. The most recent episode we did, we discussed the Atrioc deepfake porn situation and the ethics of deepfake porn and the recent controversy that just exploded in the streamer landscape, in the streamer space. We also talked about a lot of the anti-trans legislation that is sweeping the United States right now. So if that's the kind of thing that is interesting to you, then please do become a patron and every single little bit helps. It seriously does. Sometimes at the end of the month, that that little bit of, of Patreon funding really gets me through the month. So thank you, everyone. I do have several pieces of housekeeping. I recently co-authored an article for the skeptical magazine Free Inquiry with my colleague and good friend, Murphy Fox. And the article is called The Satanic Temple as Secularists' Imperfect Allies. And Murphy and I mount a case that TST is a force for good in the world and why. And we try to address head on some of the specific criticisms of TST and why we think that some of those criticisms do not hold water. So if that is interesting to you, there will be a link in the show notes. Well, with all of that out of the way, I am delighted to welcome my good friend, John Moorhead, back to the show. John, how's it going? It's going well. It's good to be here. I hope you get more uh, Patreon supporters. However, the cat circus sounds fascinating. The cat circus does sound fascinating. I have six cats. I don't think they would be good at a cat circus. They are strictly indoor. They they cannot be around anyone other than me and my partner. So I don't think a cat circus would, would go well. Okay. Well, it sounds like you already have a cat circus. You just don't <laughs> want to take it yes, I, I just don't want to take the cat circus on the right. road. Anyway, so you have been on the show before, and so longtime listeners will know exactly who you are. We've also collaborated with each other on several projects. We wrote a paper for New Wineskins back, I think, in 2019. Was that 2019 or 2020? I think so, yeah. Uh, it was a dialogue between an evangelical Christian and a Satanist. We have done episodes together. We've done YouTube videos together. So, you know, we, we have kind of this long history of being the satanist and the evangelical <laughs> and you look like you're about to say something is there some kind of award that i might get for the uh, most frequently appearing evangelical on a satanist podcast is absolutely there, there should okay. be an award and i will i will <laughs> i will print out a diploma and send it okay you. all right i like that <laughs> so so i will let you 
tell us some about who you are and what you do. Well, I think some of let me let me give a little personal biography and context that I think will be helpful for the rest of our discussion today with the topic we're going to be looking at. I am an evangelical, but I think I'm a different kind of evangelical so that I'm kind of even on the margins of my own faith tradition. Uh, years ago, I was in a very different mindset in space. I did the whole what's called countercult apologetics. That is, I helped evangelicals look at other religious traditions that they disagreed with, and they would offer apologetic refutations, or what I now call worldview annihilation. And that was what we thought was back then, or at least I thought back then, many still think this, well, that that was a way to, to make evangelical Christianity sound appealing as an alternative. And one day it just dawned on me that uh, really I was preaching to the choir, and I I started to shift towards more dialogical kinds of approaches. And so I, I expanded my horizons in terms of perspectives to include things like sociology of religion, religious studies, social psychology. And it really was helpful for me to help me understand my own tribe and why they tend to look at other religious traditions the way they do. And it created space for me to have a, a, an expanded toolkit for different ways to have these dialogues, these conversations and relationships. So the conversation we're going to have today kind of comes out of that personal journey of mine over many years. Absolutely. And so you're really passionate about multi-faith dialogue and bridging divides in conversation between different religious communities. Would you say that's accurate? Yeah, I think so. And I, I think your your use of that terminology multi-faith in distinction with interfaith is an important one because, again, these are generalizations and there are always exceptions to rules. Um, but interfaith in general tends to, uh, people are drawn to that who want to minimize difference, uh, focus on commonalities. Some will even say the differences don't even matter. They, they just appear to be differences. And uh, it tends to appeal more to people on a, a liberal than a conservative kind of mindset. And that's fine if that's your space. But mine is more multi-faith. That is, not only do I want to look at commonalities, but we have to work, recognize and work through differences. Um, and, and I think our religious communities are great examples of that. If we ignore, as a Satanist and an evangelical the real differences that we have in worldview and, and other things, then we're really not going to be able to work together for the common good. So I pursue what I call a multi-faith approach that, again, is interested in commonality, but also differences are important, too. And, and let's bring everything to the table and, and have a dialogue and conversation through those differences as well as the similarities. Definitely. And so let me preface this by giving some background about where I'm coming from. And I gave this exact same preface to my conversation that I had last week with Elizabeth Schultz, who is my sister, who is a conservative Christian, and who was my first attempt to kind of start having these types of conversations publicly and, and you know, bridging divides. And I felt like it was a very productive conversation. It hasn't come out yet. We'll see if my audience feels the same way. But I feel like culturally, we are currently living in a culture of retreat where we are retreating from each other and into our intellectual fortifications, into our worldview castles, fortified castles. And I think the digital landscape has a lot to do with this because of how it 
shapes knowledge and tailors knowledge to our own, you know, to our own preferences, but also it's human nature, you know, multi-faith and, and dialogue and talking across divides, across worldview divides is hard in the best of times. But I do fear that there are a lot of forces right now kind of working against depolarization. And I don't see any other way around using our words. I don't see any any way around us using our words to try to communicate with people we share this country with, we share our towns with. And you know, it's it's wild to me. And maybe I'm I'm more aware of this than a lot of people because I work with the public, but I in, in working with the public, it has become incredibly pressing to me. It is it is it really stands out to me that there are people standing in line in a grocery store together and they cannot offer a single comprehensive articulation of the worldview of the person standing next to them. And that's just kind of insane. Just the fact that people cannot even give a clear articulation of what someone else believes and why someone who they share the exact same space with someone you might be next to in line someone who might live right next door to you and we can't give a coherent explanation for why that person believes what they believe other than just resorting to caricatures and i think that that's a really dangerous place culturally and so i wanted to have you on to talk about rules or guidelines or or principles that help us begin to have conversations across divides because we have to. <laughs> there's, there's, in my mind, and maybe this is me being a, a drama queen, but in my mind, we really have two options in the long term. Option one is use our words. Option two is coercion and force and violence. And in my mind, those are the two options. And maybe not outright violence, but coercion in various ways, imposition of beliefs on others in unconstitutional ways. It's either that or conversation. I don't know if you have any responses to that. Yeah, I would agree. I, I think, unfortunately, we are in a very polarized and polarizing time. And of course, we are retreat to our social media bubbles, which reinforce that. And there's something that uh, neuroscientists have discovered called meta perceptions. And that is, and, and they've tested this in psychology, the perceptions that we have about other groups, the out groups, are always far more negative and stereotyped than the reality. And so the only way we're going to be able to work through that is to get to know our, not, not to be cliched and all this, but we got to get to know our neighbors. We're, we're living next to each other, even if we're not talking to each other and we're demonizing each other. And so that doesn't mean at the end of the day, we're, we're going to see eye to eye on everything. It just means we're going to clarify our differences and develop the tools and the emotional and cognitive abilities to, to work together for the common good, even though we have these deep differences. And I think you and I are in agreement as to that that needs to happen. Absolutely. Yeah. So I, I wanted to have you on to discuss some like core principles about how to go about that and just skills that you've honed over the years of working in multi-faith dialogue. But before we get into that, there's some background to this in terms of 
kind of emotional and cognitive science. And wondering if you could kind of provide that framework, that foundation for how to talk about this. Yeah, when I first started doing this and transitioning to a more dialogical, relational, and first of all, I just want to say this is not bait and switch for me. Sometimes some evangelicals who do this, and there aren't very many who do, but I'm a part of a network of people who are doing things differently. Sometimes, and I understand the suspicion, um, we are... We're, we're labeled as, as bait and switchers. You're just trying to be nice so that you can get us to convert. And, and I think persuasion can and should be on the table for everybody when it's ethically uh, done ethically, when it's invited by your conversation partner. But that's not the only thing that we should be about, trying to persuade others to, to see things the way that we do. Um, I, I'm, I'm sincere in, in what I articulate. But when I first started switching over to a different way of, of seeing and doing things, like many people, I thought, well, it's all about, it boils down to information and education. If I can just get the right facts to people that disagree with me and use an educational process, then that's the panacea for our polarization. And I think education and information are a part of it, but I don't think that's the only thing. And it's certainly not the initial thing that we ought to be concerned with. Uh, I think we also ne neglect in this process the significance of emotions. Human cognition, we tend in the West to emphasize rationality. Both your tradition and my tradition do that. Protestantism is known for emphasizing orthodoxy and apologetics and all that kind of stuff. And as important as those things are, we have to recognize that human cognition is made up of both the rational and the affective or the emotional aspect. And there, there's been some fascinating studies in neuroscience. There, were, there was a gentleman uh, years ago, I think it was in the 19th century. He, was a, uh, he worked for the railroad. He was responsible for taking explosives to clear away uh, rock formations for the railroad to go through. And he would pack in these metal rods with the explosives. And somehow something went awry. And with the explosion, this large metal rod went through his skull just blasted completely through his skull. He was knocked down. He survived. And the fascinating thing that uh, neuroscientists have learned from that is he had a complete personality change because the brain damage separated the rational from the emotional. He was shut off from his emotional part of his brain. And he had a completely different personality. He had no social skills. And other human beings since then have had not brain uh, damage like that, but similar kinds of functions, lesions on the brain where the emotion and the rationality are separated and they cannot function in society because of that separation. So I'm an original Star Trek fan and I love Kirk and Spock and all that. And for those who don't know the show, uh, Kirk was the symbol of, of uh, the emotions and Spock was logic and rationality. And I really think that many times people uh, look to Spock as the model. If we could just put aside the emotion and be uh, rational, then that's the way forward. That was certainly the way it was for Planet Vulcan and Spock and his character. But the more we know about neuroscience, that's that literally wrongheaded. We need to recognize the importance of rationality and emotion working together. So bringing this to bear on what we're talking about today, not only do we have to help people get the right information, go through an educational process, we need to recognize the emotions that are brought to bear in whether it's politics or religion, wherever we're polarized, it's not just about different facts. It's also about the emotional predispositions that we bring to bear in our relationships. Absolutely. And 
the thing that I've learned is people, including myself, we really are simple creatures and we we like kindness. It we we like kindness and we like feeling respected and we go where we feel wanted and it's that simple for at least in my mind and for me and i mean we'll we'll get to some of these principles more later but demonstrating kindness people will come to kindness people people will be drawn to kindness and so for me the first rule of Conversing across a divide is be kind. Be kind and respect your interlocutor. Don't resort to caricatures. It just, like for me, that is the most basic and simple foundational rule. And, you know, be the kind of person that my interlocutor would feel comfortable telling their their personal struggles to be the kind of person that if they had a breakup or they had a divorce or they had financial troubles that I, despite all our differences, that I would be the kind of person that they would feel comfortable coming to. And so that that to me is like the most important foundational principle. Yeah, I, I agree. I think we need that. It creates a space in relationships where people can can be vulnerable and hear each other. And this kind of really came to me when I I got a couple of grants from the Louisville Institute. The first one, I did case studies on evangelical churches that were relating to their multi-faith neighbors in positive ways, from pagans in Salem to Buddhists in Portland and everything in between. And after I did those case studies, it dawned on me, why is it that these in the minority these evangelical Christians are able to relate to the religious other in positive ways, whereas most evangelicals aren't able to do that. Mm. And what's interesting is, is both those that do negative interactions and those that do positive both point to certain Bible verses, but very different Bible verses to justify their approach. And it dawned on me that the theology is not what's it's on the surface, but that's not what's guiding it. That theology is post hoc. That is, People are bringing their psychological and emotional dispositions to these relationships, and then they look to the Bible to find verses that justify theologically what's already going on. And so I wanted to understand the psychology behind it. So that years ago started my interest and fascination with social social psychology to try and unpack some of these dynamics, which then inform some of the principles and strategies that I bring to bear today in multi-faith conversations. Fabulous. So you emailed me a list of just some core principles uh, that you wanted to discuss. Uh, There are a number of them. I don't know if we'll get to all of them, but let's start with shift from dialogos to diapathos. I don't know what that means. So tell us what that means. <laughs> that's a, that's all right. I wouldn't expect it. You would. It, it comes from an article, and I hope I'm not going to uh, butcher the name. The author is Sturla Stalsit. And uh, it, folks, if they want to, after the program, can reach out and I can make a copy available. But the author wrote an article from Dialogos to Diapathos, and the subtitle is Politics, Emotions, and Interreligious Dialogue. And basically, the argument is we have focused on dialogue, dialogos, the rational aspect of these conversations. And the author makes the case, as important as that is, we need to switch to diapathos, the emotional aspect. And, and the emotional author, exchange, in other words, yeah, like, like, yeah. An, like an emotional conversation rather than an intellectual conversation. Exactly. 
Yeah, the author talks about making this, trying to create an emotional map of yourself and your conversation partner to find out emotionally where they're coming from. And that that is as important, if not more important than the dialogos part. And in my experience, that's been the case. I've done public dialogues with Latter-day Saints in uh, Portland and Washington. You and I have our dialogues. And it's not so much the rational component. It's not that I've tried to, I do try and learn as much as I can about the satanic temple and so on as background. But I found that if I can connect emotionally, if I can have that pathos aspect with my conversation partner, that creates a, creates fascinating spaces. In fact, let me throw something out here and get your feedback. When the, the stars aligned and I was the very first time you and I had a conversation on your podcast, you didn't know me from Adam, but you had gotten recommendations from some people that we knew, a pagan a uh, friend of ours and uh, Joe Laycock had opened doors. So you have me as a guest. Now you had me as a guest because you trusted those people who made the recommendations and set this up. But I sensed and I understand a little tension because you didn't know what I was going to say, the kinds of questions I was going to ask. But I got the feeling as we had that first conversation that the kinds of responses I was giving created more of an openness in you and then you, one question you asked me stuck out, what do I think about ex-evangelicals? And I think you might have been waiting for an answer. Well, you know, those ex-evangelicals, they never really were true Christians, right? That kind of defensive kind I, of response. I was definitely feeling out the territory. I was yeah. like, what kind of evangelical is this? Yes, right. For sure. and, and my response was, I think we need to be self-critical and listen to these stories and ask ourselves, what does this say back to the church about our feelings? And and I really, I feel, and if this isn't the case, let me know, that that conversation and that question really created that emotional space for you that enabled us to develop the relationship that continues today. Would you say that's absolutely close? Yes, absolutely. No, and I think it was probably that that question in particular. And your yeah. answer to it. And one of my favorite terms comes from Wendy Vandervall Gritter, who I don't know if she still leads this ministry, but it was it's called Generous Spaciousness Ministries. And she worked especially in terms of like gay Christian stuff and and and, you know, the the d- debates, very vicious debates, especially in the in the 2000s and 2010s over homosexuality within Christianity. And she coined this term generous spaciousness, which is the act of deliberately allowing people the space to be who they are and to be where they are intellectually and emotionally. And it's it's like a deliberate opening up of the space and just being like, wherever you are, that's okay. And it, that is not contingent on our, our relationship is not contingent on you being one way or another, but instead you just have this, this open space that I will help to provide. And I think that, that that's kind of what you're describing as well is, is providing a, a an open space through these answers and through the answer that you gave me of you, you, you have the space to be who you are and and what you are. And that's okay. Would you say that's accurate? Yeah. Yeah. I I think so. And, and that was for me, an example of this, it's, we were doing dialogue, we were doing dialogos, but at the same time, 
Well, I was trying to introduce diapathos, and that's a part mm. of what I do in all of my conversations. It's not just, do, do I have my facts right about the religious background of my conversation partner? Is Am I bringing the right emotional attitudes, and am I receptive to their emotional state of being in the moment in a conversation as well? And I think that space creates all kinds of opportunities. So would an example of diapathos be something like, I'm trying to think of an example. Okay, so for example, I, and I wrote about this, I just recently had a conversation with a friend and they'd been kind of going through a deconstruction period of their faith and they described themselves as as a non-theist for a while or as an atheist, something like that for a while. And then last time I saw them, they said, I just I just couldn't do it. And they said it as if they were very ashamed of this, as if it was something shameful. I didn't think it was anything to be ashamed of. And they said, I just couldn't I couldn't live without a feeling of direction, without a feeling of a God or and I just emotionally couldn't do it. And I think that the appropriate response to that is I can really see that. That makes sense to me that I can I can see how that would be really painful. I get that. And I don't think that there's any shame in saying religion is an important thing in your life. So so is are is something like the words I can see how you feel that or I can see why you feel that way. Would that be like an important phrase in the concept of diapathos? Yeah, I think it's an important phrase. Uh, however we want to work it, I can I can see or I I, I feel it, it's it's tough because you don't want to come off as patronizing, right? Of course, and you want to be sincere, but you're letting the other your conversation partner know that I'm with you in the space. I may not have the same feeling, I may not have the same mindset, I may strongly disagree with why you feel that way, but I understand it, and I'm I'm in that space with you. And I think that just as it did for you and I, it creates an openness in spite of, even though you may not know each other very well, you still at the end of the day have deep disagreements. It creates a space and a connection that I think we desperately need if we're going to have any chance to work through the polarization of the country. Definitely. Yeah. So so basically, it's it's empathy. It's, it's cognitive empathy. It's trying to put, put yourself in the emotional shoes of another person. And that doesn't mean you agree with them. That doesn't mean that you think that they, that there aren't grave moral consequences to what they believe, because there are, you know, being human means having moral judgments of other people. And that's fine. That's okay. It It's how we act on that that matters. And one of the most important things we can do is practice some cognitive empathy and get into their emotional space and understand why they feel the way they feel. Yeah, and I, I think we need to acknowledge at the outset how tremendously difficult that is. I mean, I know a lot of uh, Satanists and pagans are former Christians or they've been burned by Christians in the church. And to ask them... Just like asking evangelicals who view pagans and and many Satanists as the boogeymen, right? To ask them not not to view them as the embodiment of evil, but to try and enter that emotional space. It's tremendously difficult. But if we're going to work through, again, the polarization 
and rehumanize each other. It's something we just have to learn how to do. So the next item that you have here, I feel like is is really a continuation of this previous idea of diapathos, which is begin with the human element, not ideas, ideologies, or doctrine. So what does that mean? Well, uh, I'm sure the audience is familiar. They may be, they have seen public dialogues. One of, one of the criticisms I have about dialogue is it's often these quote-unquote professionals the scholars, the academics, and, and I'm all for scholarship and in, in the academy, I do my own scholarship. Um, but it's the experts up front showing us how it's supposed to be done. And it's about ideas. When religious adherents get together, it's about tell me about your worldview and your doctrines and your ideas. And all of that is important. However, it's you really can't begin with that. Uh, in addition to calling the approach that I do multi-faith, we also do something called religious diplomacy. I work for the Foundation for Religious Diplomacy, and our methodology uh, doesn't begin with, tell me about your ideas. It's, tell us your journey and how you came to hold your deepest convictions. So it begins on that human note. And I try and do that when I have guests on from other religions on my podcast at Multifaith Matters. I don't say, uh, let's talk about the ideas. I begin with, how did you come to the position whether uh, personally and academically that you hold the views that you do. And it's just to rehumanize each other. It's to connect on a personal level before we get to the ideas where we may disagree. Hmm. Yeah. Okay. So, and also that's just good podcasting too. I mean, that that's, that's excellent podcasting to start with. Tell me your story rather than tell me your beliefs, because human beings are storytelling creatures. And so we have we will have that instantaneous connection with a story, whereas beliefs are alienating or they can be. Hold on. My cat is interrupting. He wants to get into my lap. He uh, he has an inner ear issue, so he can't he, he he's very clumsy. Oh, he just left. So he can't I have to he can't get on my lap and I have to pick him up. All right. Gosh. So. The next item we have here is a need for humble confidence. What is humble confidence? Yeah, it's a it's a term I like. Uh, there's a, a new book by a couple of, uh, of evangelicals that titled their book "Humble Confidence." And when I first saw it, I thought that kind of encapsulates the approach that I advocate. There's a, a great interest in social psychology right now to work on intellectual humility. And they define that as uh, when you go into it and in politics or religion, go into it being aware that you could be wrong about your views and you're open to change. And as much as I appreciate that, I don't think a whole lot of people go into conversation saying, you know what, I could be uh, very wrong about my most basic, uh, most sincere <laughs> and important you know, political and religious views. And what's interesting is those people in my network, those evangelicals who are relating to people in other religions in positive ways, they're not emphasizing intellectual humility. They are are open to the other and learning more, but at the same time, they have a confidence in their worldview and their conversation partners, whether Buddhist or pagan or Muslim, they do the same thing. So I, I must disagree a little bit with the, the current trend in social psychology as important as intellectual humility is, I don't think we're defining it correctly. And I think it, it comes about at the wrong place in these kinds of dialogues. So I'm advocating humble confidence. That is, bring your confidence in your convictions, but at the same time, it has to be tempered with humility. 
that I'm going to go into this space. I'm going to hear things I'm going to disagree with, and that's okay. And I may just learn something about my conversation partner and their worldview that shows that that I had a misconception, and that's all right. So I prefer that that, that kind of label and that concept of humble confidence. I really think it it more accurately describes the real world dynamics that I've seen. Yeah, I find it really helpful to think about how I use my language in certain situations and certain settings. And so using just just little things like using I statements. I believe that X, Y, and Z. And it's it's true, and I do believe certain things, and I believe certain things very, very strongly. But situating it with I believe this thing. This is not an acquiescence to, you know, relativity or, uh, you know, the way some people feel about using I statements. It is just a statement of fact of I believe this thing or like in in some conversations that I've had with my sister and people will hear this in, in the conversation that we have on the show. I feel she said, I feel that where you are intellectually is very dangerous. That is a very dangerous place to be. I respect that. That's okay. We've we are very close. We have the kind of trust where she can be honest with me like that, and vice versa, right? Um, but she also says, "I believe," and that allows the space for me to also believe certain things. Versus, if someone were to come and say, "Stephen, you are in a very dangerous place intellectually." the the register is completely different the t- that that completely changes the capacity for maintaining that generous spaciousness where we can have a conversation and so just thinking about the words we use i believe i think and that doesn't mean that we always and we don't always have to stipulate i could be wrong about this because there are some things that i don't think that i'm wrong about the other thing that I find really helpful, and again, this will this will hopefully come through in my conversation with Elizabeth, is the idea that I need people in my life who disagree with me. I need them because we're really bad at thinking alone. We're, as human beings, we're just really terrible at thinking alone. And for people who want to know more about this, read Jonathan Haidt's book, The Righteous Mind. We are terrible (laughs) at reasoning on our own, and we need other people. And so I need conservative Christians in my life to moderate me, to challenge me, to confront me. And that doesn't mean I think I'm wrong. (laughs) (laughs) because I don't. I don't think I'm wrong. But it does mean that they might see things that I don't, and they can push back. They can shape me. They can help me kind of hone my thinking and expand my empathy. And maybe they have concerns that I'm not aware of, because maybe they have moral intuitions or, or moral hot spots, moral taste buds, as Jonathan Haidt says, that just don't register for me. And so I find it really helpful to think in terms of I need to keep people in my life who disagree with me because I actually need them. I'm pretty stupid on my own. <laughs> yeah, I, I think you and I are alike in that area. I'm glad you you mentioned that. I spend a lot of time. My, my podcast is filled with uh, conversations with uh, Hindus and pagans and Satanists and all kinds of things. And I, in, I lo- relish being in that space. And this is going to sound like heresy for any evangelicals who may stumble upon this podcast. 
but the chances are probably pretty low that they will. So I probably say <laughs> I feel more spiritual exhilaration on average in these kinds of spaces, having these conversations with people that I disagree with deeply than I do going to my average Sunday service where I get the routine of sermon and song and, and, and that kind of a thing. So I really prefer being in that, that liminal, uh, creative, you know, imaginative, uh, generous kind of space with people that I disagree with. I mean, it's, it's anti-fragility and there's, there's pleasure in getting a workout. People are always like, Stephen, why do you read books by, you know, right-wing conservative chuds? And it's hard for me to explain why I genuinely enjoy it. In the same way, it's impossible to explain why is it pleasurable to to go on why is it pleasurable for me to go on a five mile run up a mountain because there's something about that space and that suspension and that having to engage and grapple where it has transformed from just agony to an actually pleasurable and uplifting experience and it's kind of an alchemical process of transforming kind of the agony of of being in the presence of ideas that just make us want to vomit into an experience of anti-fragility of and, and for people who don't know anti-fragility is the concept that there are some systems that require stress in order to grow and in order to be healthy human beings are anti-fragile systems so in the absence of pressure we start to fall apart but in the presence of pressure in the presence of the correct pressure we flourish and i think that's true intellectually and emotionally as well you know not too much not to, but but just right that Goldilocks zone, and I I kind of get the feeling that that's that may be what you're describing because I have it too. I have a, a profound sense of meaning and exhilaration and fulfillment. Well, I like that example that you gave about the you know the running up the the mountain. Uh, I my knees are way past running up mountains, but the basic principle still holds that you know when you first start an exercise program, man, you feel like you're a you know five pack a day cigarette smoker. But if you keep with it, it, your body acclimates and then you start to enjoy it and you look forward to it and you get that adrenaline rush and this kind of a thing. Yes. And I think it's a similar kind of dynamic in these kinds of conversations. We need to put ourselves in the difficult space at first, but then if you can just stick with it and uh, have some positive experiences, I, I think people will really get something positive out of it. Yeah, you know, it's it's so interesting to me how I can now share a space so for background i'm a magic player and a and a tabletop board game player and and so on and so forth so that's what i do in my free time is you know tabletop and and all that and i play with especially guys some of whom are very conservative some of whom are are traditional catholics you know conservative christian catholic trad catholics some of whom are baptists some of some we are in a new world where baptists play dungeons and dragons apparently or family members or friends of family who years ago would have caused my heart rate to elevate and the fact that i can now sit across the table from someone and play a game of magic with them and have a good time even though i know that they are that they're probably opposed to gay marriage that they probably have some views that i would find very regressive that i can do that and not have a single elevated heart rate now 
that it doesn't it it I don't feel threatened anymore because they can't hurt me. I'm at a point where ideas don't have to hurt me. That didn't used to be the case. It used to hurt a lot. But now I'm at a point in my life where I've built up that that immune response. I, I have that that uh, expose I've done that exposure therapy where now I can just sit and and be chill and have a productive conversation. And I actually find that that is more effective in convincing other people too, because I want people to believe what I believe. I think I'm right. (laughs) And maybe they will never fully agree. But what I do find is that very often they get a bit closer to understanding gay people. And that does help open up. That does help to reduce their disgust. That helps to to reduce their disgust response. And then the next thing I know, they're asking me about my partner and they're asking me how me and John are doing, how John and I are doing. And they're and they're asking me what John does for work. And suddenly they are engaging in conversation about my life as equals. And I think think a lot of it started with me just having that exposure therapy and being comfortable around them. It's very, very hard to get there. It's taken me years, but I think it's really important. Yeah, I think uh, so. Again, what we're advocating is a humble confidence rather than a defensive dogmatism. Yes. And I think part of that goes to what psychologists call contact theory. If you have positive strategic contact with people in another group with whom you disagree, uh, statistics show that they're far more likely to have a more positive view than those that they they don't have any contact with. So I'm all for it. Yes, which is why we need to have these neutral spaces of conversation because of that, because of the need for contact. And also, this is one reason why COVID kind of really worries me, because one of the last places where people had that contact was in the workplace. All right. And so, you know, in the rest of our lives, we were kind of sheltered in our little ideological castles. Work was kind of one of the last places where people could actually actually had to, you know, were forced to like share a space with someone who might vote differently than them. And I'm not saying that the lockdowns were wrong or were medically ill-advised. I just I worry about the human effect of people not having to be in that space where they have to share a physical space with people who are different from them. And so I I kind of feel like COVID might have upped the effect of the polarization because of the reduction in contact. Yeah, I think it may be the case. Unfortunately, I think it took our self-imposed isolationist tendencies and ramped it up even more. So, Yeah, I think that's right. So the next item is recognize the power of group narratives. What does that mean? It goes back to uh, something that you we alluded to earlier, the, the power of of story. And every group has its its own internal story. And with it goes its emotions. Interestingly, there are even studies of group emotions. We tend to, when we human beings get into social groups, adopt certain emotions as well as stories. And those include not only emotions and stories about ourselves and our place in the world, but stories about the others, those who are the outgroup, those who don't belong. And we have certain emotions about them as well. And so we need to recognize the importance of the stories we tell ourselves 
and the stories we tell us ourselves about other groups as well, and be willing to not only share our story, but hear their story, uh, where they fit within their group. And I think if we do this storytelling, the sharing with each other, that will, through, again, through this contact process, uh, help uh, adjust. The, the emotions tend to follow. What's what's fascinating about human beings is behavior often behavioral change and action often influences the emotion. We're, we're holistic creatures. I, I remember one time I was at a conference uh, on evangelicals and Islamophobia. And I was in an emotional space where I just wasn't feeling it in regards to my faith tradition. And uh, I, I was kind of going through the academic motions. I was It was a great conference. And of course, at our conferences, you always have to do the Christian thing. And so they started singing some songs. And I said, ah, I just don't feel like doing it, but I'm going to do it anyway. And just by going through the process, the ritual, the action, the behavior, it impacted my emotion in a more positive way. And so if we can emphasize all of this coming together, if we can recognize the importance of storytelling and personal narrative and go through those motions, I think we change ourselves and in the relationship process, hopefully we positively change the other as they respond to that process. I don't know if that makes sense. So if I'm hearing you correctly, to to really talk across religious and worldview divides, we need to kind of get our feet wet and our hands dirty in a in a good way, in a positive way, <laughs> with some with their rituals and with their their stories. And so it, it, so then we can kind of tap into that emotional vein. One of the ways that I like to think about religious traditions is, and I feel this way about Satanism, how is it that someone could decide that Satan, who is traditionally the figure of the figurehead of all evil and destruction, culturally, how could someone emotionally resonate with Satan as a hero? Well, it's similar to, say, Catholicism, where how is it that each week Catholics ritualize an act of religious cannibalism and say that that is the pinnacle, that is the highest Eucharist, that is the pinnacle of intimacy with God and holiness? It only makes sense when we tap into the stream. And then when we tap into the stream, boom, it makes sense. But as long as we stand outside of that stream, we it will be incomprehensible to us. So until we tap into the romantic literary tradition of, of Satanism and tap into the poetry and tap into Anatole France and into the beauty of the words and can really feel the poetry and share the poetry and understand the historical significance of a black mass and why, where the Black Mass comes from and why it's meaningful. Until we can feel that, then understanding Satan as the hero will make absolutely zero sense. And I think that that's true of all, all kinds of things. You know, that, that there's something like that in most religious traditions, I think, to varying degrees, of course, where it's like it, it won't make sense. It will be incomprehensible to us until you get inside that imaginative and emotional stream. And then suddenly it's like, boom, it all comes together and I can get it. And I can't, and I don't know how to convey it until someone else has also experienced it. 
Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. And I think it also involves a process of self-critical reflection on your own narrative. We we develop blind spots. And I was reminded of this. Uh, there's a great show on Amazon Prime. And no, they're not a sponsor. But anyway, it's called I Carl wish, Rowe. Jesus, I would love yeah, some yeah. of that Amazon Prime money. <laughs> it's it's a dark fantasy show. There's only two seasons. They're currently nearing the end of season two. Uh, uh and there is in the show, there's I remember watching the first season. They were in this monastery-like uh area, and there was a, a figure on the wall of a, a guy being hung. And the religious clerics have nooses around their necks. And for a moment I thought, well, that's bizarre. But then it struck me, wait a minute, that is a fantasy take on what we see in Christianity. On the crucifixion. The crucifix, right? what, what show was and, it? Yeah, it's called Carnival Row. I oh, highly yes. recommend it. Yeah, yeah. I haven't seen and it so yet. They call yeah. this figure the martyr, right? And they're constantly doing things in the name of the martyr and, and this kind of a thing. And it gave me a moment for critical self-reflection on my blind spots with my religious tradition. I don't think twice about a crucifix or a cross and this kind of a thing. But for outsiders, that's pretty bizarre stuff. That you've got a religious tradition with a, a crucified Jewish man at the center of your religious tradition and all the symbolism and narrative that flows out of that and and that, so this, by watching this fantasy program i was able to critically self-reflect and get back in touch with the weirdness and centrality of aspects of my own religious tradition so if we can just be more critical and more aware of our own narratives i think that helps coming to hear another narrative from somebody in another religious tradition right so there are kind of two approaches here. One approach, if I'm hearing this correctly, is to try to decenter yourself and see how people might be weirded out or feel alienated by or just not grasp your own religious tradition. I feel like I I I have the advantage of being able to do this on a daily basis because <laughs> you can't be a public satanist without the majority of people around you being like what the fuck is this. So right. I so I get to practice that on a regular basis. But then there's the other thing, the other hand which is to try to tap into the narrative stream of other traditions. So that then you can have that click moment and be like, I'm not this religion, but suddenly the story makes sense to me. And the, for me, what I find really helpful is to, to do that is ritual. So actually going to a service, going to a church, experiencing the liturgy, I find that very helpful and, and to kind of tap into those effervescent group emotions. Another way is to read the myths and read the the stories. And so reading, you know, C.S. Lewis, who I was raised on, but but reading the Chronicles of Narnia kind of helps me grasp all over again the beauty of the Christ story. Even though I don't believe in Christ, I can I can start to grasp why it's meaningful to people. Yeah, I, I think it's very important. I'm I'm a huge fan of understanding the significance of myth and narrative and symbol for human beings. And we need to understand our own as well as those of the other. And I think there's something of a, a irony here. I've seen a lot of criticism, public protest uh, by 
conservative Catholics of the Satanic Temple, and they take issue with the the figure of Satan. And what they they miss by lacking that critical self-reflection on their own tradition, their own symbolism and narrative, is the figure of Christ on a cross is just as weird, just as grisly, as bizarre, right? Yes. For Satan and for others who don't share you know, the comfort with that narrative. Exactly. No, you're absolutely right. So the next item that we have here is the need to develop relationships and trust. And I think we've hit on this already, but but talk about what you mean by this. Well, I'm a huge advocate uh, of trust building. I, I think it's it goes to the, it cuts away polarization. Um, you and I developed it over time. I think the initial seeds of what would develop later over the course of a few years was planted in that very first conversation where somehow emotionally you came to the place through our conversation and the kinds of answers I was giving that this could be a trustworthy person. I mean, I totally could have blown it. I could have been your stereotypical evangelical who misunderstood and wanted to misrepresent Satanism and Satanists. Um, but that's not where I was coming from. And trust became possible. And one of the things that we try to do at the Foundation for Religious Diplomacy is we we do not talk about another person's religious tradition, even when they're not there, in ways that we wouldn't feel comfortable with talking about as if they were standing right behind us. Mm. We always try to be trustworthy in the kinds of conversations that we have with and about other people's religious traditions. Mm. And one thing we desperately need in American society today is, is trust. You cannot maintain a democracy without trust. And I think trust is in, in very little supply these days. So we, we have to, but the challenge is, as you know, is building trust through deep difference. We're not saying that these differences are going to go away. Some might, but at the end of the day, we still have very deep differences about politics and, and theology and religion and those things, and that's okay, but we can build trust and work together for the common good through deep difference, and that's why trust is so important. Yeah, so listening to you talk, there is, I think, a question that might emerge for some listeners, which is, do you ever feel complicit by being friends with someone who you might have profound disagreements with, as if you are enabling the bad beliefs and therefore bad actions, because I think there is this intuition that all beliefs are action in utero. And so do you ever feel, or how would you respond to someone who's like, I just, I cannot be around a kind of radical pro-life catholic let's say someone from church militant from the from the religious group church militant i just i cannot engage with someone like that because i am afraid not even as a friend just engage with them because i am afraid that that feels like being complicit in the harm that they are doing how would you react to that yeah, that's that's a tough one. I think I'm pretty much disposed positively to engage almost anybody. I mean, even uh, say a neo-Nazi or something and see what kind of response I get. I'm not going to engage them in such a way that I think I'm facilitating or enabling socially destructive kinds of behaviors. Uh, but I can still deeply disagree with somebody that I'm have, trying to have a positive kind of relationship and conversation with. And, and so I know this is very unevangelical because we tend, beliefs are so important. And we think that, you know, 
if you support somebody that you strongly disagree with, you're you're furthering their false beliefs. Um, just this week, I received uh, an email from a former evangelical who became Latter-day Saint, who reached out through my website and they said, Ken, I know you're involved in dialogue. Can you give me some links to the kinds of work that you do? Can you recommend other uh, resources? And I, I sent examples of some public dialogues I've had. And then I copied that person on an email to two Latter-day Saint colleagues that I've done dialogue with and said, he's looking for resources. And one of my Latter-day Saint colleagues emailed me back and said, I, I, I'm amazed that you didn't try to pull them back into the fold of evangelicalism and send them links to anti-Latter-day Saint material. Um, that's not where I'm at. If this person has made a decision in their life journey to leave evangelicalism, even though I may disagree with the direction, that's their choice. If they want to approach me at some point and say, hey, what do you think about this journey? I'll give you some, some thoughts. But I want to honor the journeys that people are on, even though I strongly disagree with it. And I think there's a time and place to share those disagreements and to do it in a, a charitable kind of way. Yeah, I I relate to everything you just said, because <laughs> I actually just the past this past week, I want to be careful about how I say this because I don't want to talk about anyone who hasn't you know, consented to being talked about. But there is a, an old woman in this area who has a small business that she's starting up and it, she's like a very evangelical conservative Christian. And she came to me and was just like begging me for help for with this business because she was like, I, Stephen, I don't know what I'm doing. I, you know, I have no idea. Could you please just come to the space and look at it and tell me what to do? And I was like, absolutely. I, even though I know that this space is going to be set up to host events that I would 100% be opposed to it in in, in, in ideologically and yeah that's complicated <laughs> it's like but I but to me and I ran this by one of my friends who I really respect who's very much on the same page with me and she was like Stephen that's just being kind and I relate very much to what you <laughs> just said the other thought I had in regards to that it reminded me of an article that I wrote back in 2019 now or 2020 where I uh, and it's called why I haven't left the satanic temple and in that article I try to compassionately criticize some of my fellow lefties because what I identified was a very strong sense of contagion and this feeling that there is kind of this spiritual contagion that comes from bad people, and that if we hang out or spend time with those people, then we will be contaminated. So there's this very strong sense of contagion, I feel like, in a lot of leftist spaces. There is, a, there is an obsessiveness with purity and contagion, purity and uncleanliness. But I feel like in a lot of leftist spaces, it specifically has to do with ideology. And so there's this feeling of disgust and uncleanliness. And that's the hurdle that I think needs to be overcome. But what's never considered, I think, the pitfall of this mentality is that we never consider that maybe the contagion also runs in the opposite direction. <laughs> we never stop to consider that maybe maybe I can rub off on them and that there can actually be kind of this mutual exchange. And that completely transforms 
the relationship. And so there is this feeling of complicity and contagion when we spend time with people who might disagree with us. And I think that this is particularly true for people on the left, on, in the spaces that I inhabit, the ideological political spaces that I inhabit. There is this feeling of complicity and contagion. But we never stop to consider that maybe the contagion can also flow in the opposite direction and that there can be an exchange of ideas and we can rub off on each other. And that might actually be a good thing. Yeah, no, that's you put your finger on a very important reality. I think it's not just for the left. It's a huge issue for the right, particularly for evangelicals and conservative Christians. And the fear is and this leads to fear and sometimes anger. The fear that if I get too close to somebody in another religious tradition, if I'm not either just proclaiming without listening, proclaiming my message, or apologetically refuting their quote-unquote false ideas, if I can get in close to them for those reasons, but if you're asking me to go to a space and just have a conversation and be vulnerable and these kinds of things, I'm opening myself to spiritual contamination. That is a very real fear that we have to acknowledge my argument is, in response to that, I recognize it. However, we need to recognize that living in the world is a dirty process. And the way one builds up immunity, if you will, is by getting dirty and by being in those spaces and having that mutual contamination, being willing to mutually contaminate each other with other, other ideas. The reality is, in interfaith, Statistics indicate that most people who go through an interfaith kind of process don't end up converting to another religious tradition. It ends up actually confirming and strengthening your own religious commitments. That is not to say that occasionally, you know, uh, conversions don't take place. That's a reality. That's a risk. But I think that life and depolarization in this country is worth the risk and that we need to be willing to put ourselves in a position of mutual contamination. So thank you for having that second thought there. That was very important. <laughs> Definitely. I mean, I love that you described life and the world as a dirty place and that we really just have to get dirty and we have to kind of embrace contamination. One of my own personal satanic phrases is resist purity and Satan kind of representing a trespassing of boundaries and resistance of purity. And so to me, this, this slots right in to my Satanism. I also just, you know, this is a this is a hobby horse of mine, but whenever it comes up, I always feel the need to emphasize this. Purity and intellectual purity is also incredibly classist. For people who work in lower income settings, they don't have the choice to choose their peers. And so a lot of the talk, especially from my people, about um, you know, just not giving giving anyone an inch and just don't engage in dialogue. Don't engage in conversation. You can't convince them. You can't, you can't, people can't be, people don't change their minds, which is a line of argument that I've actually heard. And so therefore there's no use to engage at all. The problem is that this attitude is really a classist one that gives absolutely nothing of value to the people who work in the service industry, to people who work in a factory, where to people like me who have worked in service industry jobs for my entire adult life and 
Next to one shoulder will be a trans anti-fascist gutter punk wearing the leather and the studs. And then next to the other shoulder will be a good old boy Trump supporter who was raised on a farm. And we have to figure out how to work together. We don't have the choice. And so I always feel the need to emphasize that the contamination fear ultimately underserves people who need skills to be able to talk across divides because they don't have a choice. People working low-income jobs in places like where I work, we don't have a fucking choice. We have to work with and be a team with and cooperate with people who are very different from us. So we are actually really underserving minorities who work who live in rural areas we are underserving people you know gay people trans people so on and so forth who who are lower income if we don't help to cultivate skills of resilience and to embrace the contamination rather than be afraid of it so that's a big point that i always feel the need to to bring up because I do work in an industrial district and I see a lot of situations that I feel like a lot of people having this conversation don't see. So thus endeth the rant. <laughs> <laughs> I think I think that's very important. And I just want to, again, reiterate, I, this is not what I'm, what you and I are advocating is not your father's interfaith. This is something different. <laughs> yes. It yes, raises indeed. the bar of difficulty but I think if we're going to make, if we're going to have personal transformation and move beyond polarization and work together for the common good, we have to make ourselves feel uncomfortable and raise the bar and be willing to do the kinds of things you and I are advocating. Yes, absolutely. So the next item we have here is have a willingness to extend and be the recipient of hospitality. What does that mean? Uh, hospitality is a part of uh, many religious traditions, including uh, my own Christianity. It was one of the... Uh, central features of the early Christian church as they gathered around a common table. And what was fascinating in that context was that that was, it, it mimicked the Roman uh, table, but there wasn't the class divisions. Uh, the poor would sit together with the rich and men and women and, and barriers broke, broke down. And I think we need to tap into the best of our religious traditions as we extend hospitality and recognize that there are power dynamics involved. It's one thing for me in my quote-unquote Christian home to invite a Latter-day Saint neighbor in, but it's another thing for me to then be willing to go over to my Latter-day Saint neighbor's house or his ward and be in a different power dynamic in that kind of context. So what we've seen in our network is not only evangelicals have Buddhists over for a potluck in their sacred space, but to be willing to go to the Buddhist temple and be the recipient of their hospitality. So it's a mutual uh, vulnerability and an exchange of power dynamics that works together for us to build relationships. Mm, yeah, and I feel like that second part is often missing because there's a lot of talk about extending hospitality. Right. There's a ton of talk about, you know, being a good neighbor, extending hospitality, but the missing component so often is you also have to receive hospitality, and the message that that sends is just as important, if not more. Oh, yeah. 
Yeah. Yeah, we did that in our neighborhood years ago when we first moved here. We started a, a series of neighborhood potlucks with maybe five families within each religious community. We would alternate. Uh, we would have it in an evangelical home or we would have it next time was in a Latter-day Saint home or a ward. And we let everybody know right up at the, right up front, this is what we're going to do. This isn't just going to be in one person's sa- sacred safe space. We will have to be willing to go into their safe space and maybe make ourselves feel uncomfortable as an important and vital part of that relationship process. Mm, yeah, I love that. Then the next item you have here is I absolutely love support the freedoms of others particularly those one most disagrees with and finds offensive. Give, can you give some concrete examples of that? Oh, yeah. I mean, as you know and your audience knows, uh, evangelicals and other Christians talk a lot about religious freedom, but what we often mean by that is we want to fight for our religious freedoms, many times at the expense of others in minority religious traditions. And what I and those in my network are advocating is something very different. If I don't support the rights of others in minority religious traditions to have an equal place at the table in our democracy, even those that I may not only strongly disagree with, but find offensive, uh, then I'm really not supporting religious freedom. Everybody has to have the same freedoms To practice, I advocate what's called the clothed public square, not the naked public square. There are advocates uh, of the naked public square. That is, just needs. Let's just take everybody out. Uh, It's going to be completely secular. Um, That is not my view because I don't think that's fair. I think a secular public square privileges the secular at the expense of the religious. So let's go the opposite direction, which can be as equally uncomfortable, but I think necessary, where everybody has the freedom to participate and to express, which, of course, is what the Satanic Temple is about in its provocative things like the Baphomet statue and the, the Christmas uh, the, the counters, if you will, to the nativity displays, even though many conservative Christians don't recognize it, it's a provocative way of challenging Christian hegemony. And it makes the point that I think we Christians need to get behind. Everybody needs a, a we need to support those religious freedoms of everybody, including those we don't like. Yeah. You know, I was just writing an article and one of the segments was about the Baphomet statue on the lawn, I think in Arkansas. And I was quoting, we were quoting from Joseph Laycock, Speak of the Devil, and how, you know, TST filing their proposal to put Baphomet on the lawn kind of triggered this onslaught of other proposals from like the Hindus and all of these different groups and from a secular group and from multiple groups. And I was just like, and I was just imagining what that lawn could have looked like. (laughs) And I was like, that's so, it's so sad that that didn't happen. Like the, just this, this lawn dotted with actual representations of the citizenry. Like, how fucking beautiful would that be? An actual, actually representative lawn. Dropping things from my desk. An, an actually representative government lawn full of Shiva and Baphomet and Jesus and so on and so forth, you know, uh, 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 Aphrodite for the pagans, you know, whatever the case may be. And just like how... How gorgeous would that have been? And I will say one of the things that 
on the point of supporting the freedoms of others, particularly those one most disagrees with and finds offensive. One thing that TS did, TST did that did not get enough attention that I'm very proud of them for, one of the things that makes me very, very happy was TST filed an amicus brief in defense of Church Militant because Church Militant in Boston, the city did not want Church Militant. For people who don't know, Church Militant is an organization that I find repulsive. They opposed TST. They've called people from Church Militant have called Lucian Greaves a pedophile. Like they they are not kind to TST. The Boston City Council was saying church militant cannot protest publicly. They cannot protest. And the the bishop the American Conference of Bishops, I think, was what was going on. And because they see the current leadership of the Catholic Church as being corrupt and too progressive, they were doing a protest of the leadership of the Catholic Church. And the leadership in Boston said, no, we don't want them here. They can't protest. And TST filed an amicus brief saying, you know, defending church militants' right to protest, even though TST and church militant could not be more opposed <laughs> ideologically. And that that made me so happy because that that is a demonstration of the commitment to foundational principles and genuine religious freedom. Well, as you may recall, Joe Laycock in his book on TST distinguishes between pretend pluralism yes. and deep pluralism, right? And so if you go out there and just advocate for your freedoms and not those that you strongly disagree with or abhor, that's a pretend pluralism. And what you and I are advocating for is a deep pluralism. And so everybody has to figure out where they come down on this issue in this challenge of the day. That The sad thing for me is watching the response many times of uh, city councils when TST tries to get prayer and invocation uh, or other types of challenges is many times the response will be, well, fine, then we're just going to remove, no one gets to have an invocation, right? Either I get my expression or nobody does. And, and that's a commitment to that pretend pluralism. You want your freedoms and your rights, but you don't want to grant them to everybody because you don't agree with them. We, we've got to get to the place in our society where as strongly as we disagree, everybody gets a voice at the table. And through that process of, of having a voice, listening to each other, having the conversations, developing the relationships, uh, then we're able to work together for the common good. But if it's my way is the only way, we're never going to get there. Yeah, the... The thing that you just said about the common good is really, really important because in order for a democratic republic to work, you have to have buy-in from people who you fundamentally disagree with. So, so we can't completely shut people out of the public square, and that includes religions. So we, in order for this thing called democracy to work, we have to have buy-in from disparate groups. The only way we can do that is by saying, okay, they get equal access to the public square. If we don't say that, then the whole system falls apart. It, so it isn't, it isn't to say, you know, the, the unfortunate assumption is that if you defend freedom of speech or you defend freedom of religion and 
you'd kind of take a deep pluralism stand and you know defend the the freedom of speech of church militant that the unfortunate assumption is that you must agree with church militant or you must be standing in solidarity with church militant because you agree with them no we defend the rights of church militant because if we don't then that is a fundamental undermining of democracy because democracy requires buy-in from everyone yeah and and this relates to what we talked about previously for a christian i get a lot of flack because i i like using tst as an example of forcing conversations about some of the most important issues that we face today in our divided society and i run the risk of being seen as a lead contaminator uh, (laughs) in the church because you're advocating for satanists and it's like look i don't have to agree with their worldview or anything just to say that they need to have the same freedoms that I enjoy if we're really going to have a a proper, healthy, functioning democracy. So it's risky, but it needs to be done. I've seen some of your Facebook exchanges too, which which can get exciting. (laughs) (laughs) You you send me screenshots sometimes. (laughs) (laughs) Possibility of ethical persuasion when appropriate. What does that mean? That means uh, one of the things that distinguishes a religious diplomacy, multi-faith approach versus interfaith is that persuasion is a possibility that's left on the table. In interfaith, attempts at persuasion is a no-no. You you don't go into these spaces thinking that your worldview is true or truer than another one. Uh, you just don't try to persuade. You just go in and work together on common causes, which is all well and good. However, I, I really don't think that's well thought through. If you really believe that your con- your religious convictions are the best, better than others, then there ought to be spaces and times when that can be pursued, when you can try to persuade your conversation partner. Now, th- the mistake uh, of evangelicals and other conservative Christians is that tends to be all we want to do is to try and evangelize and persuade. That's one way of dealing with religious pluralism, uh, is absorbing the other into your worldview, right, through evangelism. That way you don't have to worry about it. If everybody thinks like I do, problem solved. Uh, so I'm not advocating that, but what I'm saying is, rather than say like interfaith, we, we never try to persuade, or conservative Christianity, that's all we try to do, is there has to be a space in religious diplomacy and multi-faith engagement when it's done ethically, when it's invited and welcomed by your conversation partner, partner, that we try to persuade each other as to why our particular views are better than the alternatives. And again, that has to be mutual as well. It's not just the Christian trying to uh, persuade a Satanist or somebody else. There has to be a mutual openness. Give me your best case why Mormonism or Satanism or what have you is the better option that I ought to pursue. And I see persuasion being an important part of an overall process and one of the principles and tools in the toolkit that we can legitimately bring to these kinds of conversations. Yeah, I really appreciate that because I think, as I said earlier in this conversation, it's human nature to have judgments about other people. The question is, how do we act on those judgments? And are those judgments compassionate? Are those judgments mature? But we're never going to get rid of judgments of other people. And I don't think we should. I, I think that judgments of others 
when done well, actually propels society forward. That's how, because we start working together and we can criticize each other and we can create through that process, we create a more ethical and humane society, right? So having judgments of each other, of each other's beliefs and each other's behavior, that's actually really important. It's a question of how we engage with it. And one of the things that does sometimes frustrate me about kind of the interfaith approach is the removal of that part of human nature. It 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 isn't just a a removal of that. It feels like a really deep removal. It feels like a really deep amputation of human nature. It is human nature to believe that we are right about something and to believe that other people are wrong about something and that's okay that shouldn't be that shouldn't be pushed away and i feel like to push it away is actually kind of dehumanizing it's actually kind of an act of dehumanization and can actually kind of kind of block progress in some ways so i really appreciate what you're saying like it's it's okay to have judgments about others to have moral judgments about other people's beliefs and behaviors or to just simply believe that someone is intellectually misguided yeah i I once unfortunately uh had an online discussion that really went south with uh, in a pagan forum and i was accused of being unethical because i was advocating persuasion and my pagan conversation Mm. partner when he made the accusation said well why are you trying to introduce this into interfaith. And my response was, I'm, I'm not really trying to introduce it in interfaith. If you don't feel comfortable doing that, pursue your interfaith methodology. However, I view that as a shortcoming. Why should we bracket off in the religious realm, our, our deepest convictions and attempts to persuade what we feel is the best way forward when we don't do it in other areas, whether politics or or what have you, right? When you find something that you find life transforming, you share it with your family and your friends because you find it so transformative. So why bracket that off in the religious realm? Again, as long as it's being done ethically and it's invited and welcomed as a part of a a larger picture, uh, I really see that as a major short. I think it's unethical not to do it. Yes. If you know. Yeah, no, I, I think so too. And, um, you know, it's also helpful for me to—it's it's also a good exercise in empathy because it, it can explain the behaviors of some people. Be, you know, if, if someone genuinely believes that life begins at conception, for example, then some of the measures that people take to save those lives can actually be reframed as heroic, Right. Suddenly those not I don't mean things like bombing abortion clinics or threatening the lives of. But, you know, a lot of the a lot of the activism of pro-life people. Well, if I can, I disagree with them. But if I get into that headspace, I can be like, oh, they have a moral conviction within that moral framework. They're heroes. Doesn't mean they're right. But there is something heroic there. And so it can acknowledging that other people have moral judgments about me also helps me cultivate that that empathy for them cognitive empathy and again cognitive empathy does not mean you agree with them cognitive empathy is is kind of a a starting point to actually have some kind of meaningful communication with them yeah i I do think people i I think you're right to to the course of this conversation you've emphasized the moral aspect we are Meaning-making creatures, we're moral creatures, and we connect morality to our deepest convictions, and we want to share that. And so let's create a space where we can do that. And and 
there's an inner logic to everybody's narrative, right? And their morality. It's not shared by those outside of it, but at least we need to understand what that inner logic is that others are operating from. And then again, that creates more empathy once we're, we've been able to do that. Definitely. You know, there's, well, no, that's a rabbit hole and I won't go into it. And we're already an hour and a half in, but clearly we have so much more to talk about. We always have fantastic conversations and I really appreciate you coming on and sharing some of your like Jedi master skills <laughs> with us, your, your multi-faith Jedi master skills. Um, and before we wrap up, is there anything else that you want to share? Anything that you want to plug? Uh, anywhere where people can find you. Uh, I just want to thank you again for uh, having me come on and and to be able to share, I, I think is a fairly different approach to this kind of, of topic. Uh, and the result of my own, own ongoing journey, I continue to interact with all kinds of materials from different disciplines and incorporate that into what I'm trying to do. And folks can uh, go to the website at multifaithmatters.org and find my contact information and, and so on. And uh, I would be more than happy to interact with people from, uh, you know, whether it's a satanic temple or any religious tradition who simply want to consider different basic ideas and principles that they can then weave into their own journey as they try to relate to others uh, outside of their tradition in more positive kinds of ways. Amazing. I also just have to say your background, your office <laughs> looks very satanic. And that's like one of the other underlying connections that we have is we're both into very spooky things so like your your the artwork you have is very very gothic very spooky so you have like a very satanic bookshelf and very like spooky satanic wall decor i approve well you can see krampus in the lower left the <laughs> yes out there um folks can't see it because they're listening to the audio but you know it always I always wondered why I have these two major research interests. On the one hand, religion and science fiction, fantasy, and horror, and then interreligious uh, conflict. And then it dawned on me that these two things are not unrelated. They're they're united in my, my interest in monstrosity. Uh, on the one hand, I'm fascinated by monstrosity in pop culture through those genres. And on the other hand, I, I'm interested in how humans monstrosize each other through interreligious conflict. And so a major part of my work is studying monster theory and applying it to these two different expressions uh, in human culture. So that explains the uh, the interesting uh, background there. <laughs> well, you can see my monster over here. His name is Sylvester the Murder Bunny. Everyone who has ever seen me on video for in, in my studio space here, I always have this, this rabbit teddy bear thing that whose maw is like fangs covered in blood and so he is in every single video that i have ever done i did a whole course for ordination and he was in every single video whenever i'm in a service he's in the video so yes he is my monster right there <laughs> <laughs> well he looks great and so does the exorcist poster back there by the oh, way oh thank you um all right. Well, for anyone who wants to follow up on this episode and engage in the conversation about this episode, go to my Discord server. The link is in the show notes. That is always where the conversation about my work happens. Um, I always welcome and appreciate comments on social media, but 
I'm really trying to move the conversation off of kind of big social media like Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, and onto more secure and intimate and private places like the comment section on my website or the uh, or the Sacred Tension Discord server, just because that's more sustainable for small creators like myself. So please go into the Discord server on the content discussion channel. I'm sure there will be conversation about this going on there. I would love to hear your thoughts. And if your feedback is excellent, I might feature it in an upcoming blog post. That is it for this show. The music is by Eleventy Seven. The theme song is Wild. You can find it on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to music. The show is written, produced, and edited by me, Stephen Bradford Long, and it is made possible by my patrons at patreon.com forward slash Stephen Bradford Long, and they keep me from having to resort to desperate measures and sucking bridges under dicks to make ends meet. <laughs> sucking dicks under bridges. I said sucking bridges under dicks. <laughs> they keep me from having to suck dicks under bridges to make ends meet. So if you want to spare me from that terrible fate, then please support me at patreon.com forward slash Stephen Bradford Long. And as always, hail Satan and thanks for listening. Thank you.